welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Reading from Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own in, what was my own with interest. So take so he took the talent from him and gave it to the one with the ten slaves. For to all those who have who have more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they will have will be taken away. As for this worthy slave. Throw him into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Good morning. One of the uh, more memorable and disturbing uh, episodes of the Twilight Zone found a man uh, at a party where he was enjoying good steak. Uh, listening to good music, uh, mingling with other people in very mundane ways, and begins to be very disturbed and unnerved at the pleasure of the moment, and finds himself growing in discontent and growing in boredom, and an increasing fear in the moment, and he turns to the piano man in a moment of panic and says, I, 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 don't, I don't like heaven. Uh, I, 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 I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go to the other place. And the, the man playing the piano just begins to laugh and said, uh, whoever said this was the other place? This is the other place. And it begs the question, it sort of sends a, a shimmer up our spine, asking yourself, how do you know where you are? How do you know where you stand? How do you know 
what place and what ground you, you yourself are standing. Because what Matthew is doing here in, in his gospel is he begins Jesus' ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is a picture of what it means to be in his kingdom and what it means to follow him and what the characteristics are of people who will know him and be in relationship and be his followers. And then he concludes Jesus' ministry with these parables because these are the last words of Jesus we have before he begins to be on trial and dragged into his own cross. And what Matthew gives us here is a picture of not just what it means to be in his kingdom, but what it means to be outside of his kingdom. So what what Jesus does is he gives a bunch of parables that, in a sense, make us spiritually self-aware. See, the Bible is always driving home to us the significance for us to be spiritually self-aware. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you stand? Do you know what it means to be in Jesus' kingdom? Or do we, do we do what most of us sort of walk through a week, mundanely with our eyes closed, assuming that the best will happen? But vitally throughout the testimony of Scripture is this idea of, do you, are you spiritually self-aware? Uh, Harvard uh, Journal of Business article a year and a half ago, the author wrote this. He said, in my experience and in research my co-authors and I did for our new book, hearts, smarts, guts, and luck, there is one quality that trumps all, evident in virtually every great entrepreneur, manager, and leader. That is the quality of self-awareness. The best thing leaders can can do to improve their effectiveness to become more aware, lack of awareness, is, however, the kryptonite for business building. He's saying the kryptonite, the death of your business, which most of us deeply care about in a very practical, applicable way to our lives, is to be spiritual, or is to be unaware. That's the death of your business. How much more the death of your entire life, the death of your soul, the death of all your relationships, to not be spiritually self-aware. And what Jesus wants to do in this parable is tell us a story to make us aware, to sort of be a mirror for our own soul, a mirror for our own heart, to say, this is what it means to be aware. And so let's look at this parable, learning to become aware through three things. A picture of what it means to be in, a picture of what it means to be out, and then something that can help. Becoming aware through this way, a picture of what it means to be in, a picture of what it means to be out, and then something we can do about it. First, a picture of what it means to be in. We're told this in verse 14, if you want to look back. It says, uh, For the kingdom of God, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to the other two, to the other one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. So the idea is that Jesus is referring to himself as the master, and he says, look, I'm going to go away. But I will return because the master will return and ask everyone to give an account of what they have been entrusted with. And look, there's a lot of um, talk amongst Christians and a lot of really bad literature that's been written over the last 30 or 40 years uh, debating whether or not when Jesus will return. But that's never the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is not whether, when this will happen, but that it will happen and that that this is coming. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away, but while I'm going to go away, I'm going to give you a gift. And while I give you the gift, there are expectations on what you are to do with this gift. 
That is, there is donor's intent with what Jesus leaves for us before he returns. Now, donor's intent, like, think of it this way. I mean, if you come to me and say, Alex, hey, here's uh, $30 for one of your kids' birthdays. I, I, I heard they like this toy or they want to go do this thing and I give you $30. I mean, how manipulative and uh, unfair of it is for me to take that $30 and go buy myself a new sleeve of golf balls, which I very much would want to do. But to, mis, to misuse the intent is, is both robbery to the one it's meant to go to and pretty criminal treason to the person who gave the gift themselves. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you this gift and you are called to use it with the intention of how I leave it to you. Now, what itself is the intention? The intention of the gift that God gives is for us to live out the kingdom that he himself is bringing. See, when Jesus comes and what this talent represents is God's extravagant grace upon us. And that it comes in the form of the gospel. And the gospel is that before you ever show any sort of spiritual initiative towards God himself, he came for us. He came to love us when we didn't deserve it. And he came to provide for us when we didn't want it. And it tells us that we are more broken than we care to understand. And that we are more loved and safe and provided for in, in Christ than we ever, ever care to hope. And that reality is meant to become a part of our story. You see, what the gospel is, is it's a living thing. It is a message that becomes alive in our own stories, in our own lives. And it is meant to affect our personality, the way we interact in our marriages, our relationships with our children, our relationships out in the work, and our relationships to our neighborhood. It's a story that is a living story that begins to penetrate and shape our story ourselves. Um, A couple years ago, when the movie Avatar was a phenomena, you know, in our culture, I think it was one of the best-selling movies of all time in the box office, James Cameron, in one of his interviews, said this. He said, when people have an experience in the movie theater that's very powerful, they want to go and share it. They want to go grab their friend and bring them so that they can enjoy it with them. They want to be the person that can bring them the news that this is something worth having in your life that this is a story worth living in light of. Now, what's the story of the gospel? The story simply is that of grace. That it is Jesus for you. And what we're called to do is to steward Jesus for us by making our lives for other people. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He said this in 2 Corinthians 4. For we who are alive are always being given over to our death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's the Christian in a nutshell. Do you die so that others may live? Or do you make others die so that you may live? See, every, every relationship that you have in everyday life, gives you this opportunity. Either you for other people or other people for you. And what the investment of the kingdom is in our lives is to shape us into a story that goes, our lives for other people. On the principle of grace, meaning whether they deserve it or not, whether they've earned it or not, whether they've asked for it or not. So let's apply this real quick. In our community in San Marino, 
where we are very active with our children, where we are very active with our neighbors, very active in uh, volunteering and in other people. Do you do what you do for the advancement of your own social status, for the admiration of your character, or do you give your life and time away for the benefit and the love of other people? Why do you do what you do? Is it shaped by grace? Is it shaped by your own social agenda that you might be somebody maybe worth admiring yourself or admirable to other people? Because what the investment of the kingdom in your life is supposed to be is to shape you into a gracious person that goes out into your world in very practical, mundane, normal ways and says, my life for you. Now pause. It's fair to ask this. How in the world uh, does this have to be Christian? Because uh, I know a lot of people who give their time and their efforts away uh, for others, uh, but they don't acknowledge Christianity at all. They don't believe in Jesus at all. Well, listen, if you go and serve other people and do things for your community and do things for your neighborhood uh, that's to their benefit and your detriment, if it's not done out of the initiated grace of God towards you, and not done out of thanksgiving, then even the most kind, admirable, serviceable, gracious acts you can do for other people will still be about you. Because what it will be is an opportunity for you to be somebody who's admirable, worth loving. And what we will do is even the most serviceable acts, we will do it, why? Not Not to get something, but to, excuse me, not to give something, but to get something. Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, the British preacher, used to tell, tell this story where he said, think of it this way. There was a great king, and a servant came to him and said, oh, great king, you are the king of all kings. I adore you. I love you. And uh, I'm a farmer, and these are the best two carrots that I have grown this year. And so I just want to give you these carrots to show you my love and admiration of you. And the king discerned his heart and said, you know what, I've got a plot of land right next to your land. Uh, Why don't you take it? It's all for you. And the farmer, thank you very much. So behind the curtain was another nobleman who heard this happening. He said, man, for for all that land for a carrot, what can I get for a horse? So he goes up to the king and he says, oh, great king, hey, this is my best horse. I love you, I adore you. I, uh, I want to give you this horse. And the king says, thank you very much. And the man becomes very disgruntled, very frustrated and angry. And the king looks at him and says, let me explain. He gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. See, we're called to give our lives away. We're called to live in light of this story of grace that is meant to be contagious in every aspect of our life. But unless it comes out of God's initiated grace and love to you, even the most admirable ways you can live will still be about you, which means you won't be loving and serving people. You'll be using people to get a life and a personality and a social status that you yourself want that will validate your life. See, but what it means to be in the kingdom is to take that story and let it shape who you are, and to go out into the world and live in light of it. That's what it means to be in. Secondly, we get a picture, though, of what it means to be out. So in this parable, the nobleman returns, and uh, we're told this is what happened. He tells to the other people, he says, 
Now, after a long time in verse 19, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me the five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he says the same thing to the second servant. And what we're told here is that he's, they're commended, listen, not on their fruitfulness, but on their faithfulness. So it's not as though God comes to us with the investment of his love and grace and kingdom and says, listen, if you produce a lot, like a good insurance salesman or a good investment banker, then you will be rewarded with an amazing reward. He says he commends their faithfulness, which means you took the story that began to shape you and it became alive and you began to live in light of it. And this is profound to me also. He doesn't give them a reward. He gives them more responsibility. Which means the more you understand the grace of the God, the more he thinks you should go out into the world to shape and influence other broken things. And so they're given this commendation of faithfulness. But then we're told this other man, it says in verse 24, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping, where you did not sow, and gathering where you had no scattered seed. And then we're told this, and skip down to verse 29. But, the one who, who, but the, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> what we're told here is that while there is an investment of God into our lives, there's something we can do with this investment that doesn't just warrant disapproval. It warrants being completely cast out of God's kingdom. Now, I, I, I need to speak to this for just 30 seconds because of the way we are in 2017. That when we hear of a God who would cast people out to weeping and gnashing of teeth, we either scoff and hate that, or we become very uncomfortable with the idea of a God who's not only loving, But let me say this, in our culture today, one of the things that is unnerving us the most and frustrating us to no social end are people in power who watch injustice and do nothing. Do you really want a God who's all-powerful and can control the world and yet looks at murder in a Vegas concert or looks at murdered a bunch of innocent people in a church, or looks at racism and just says no big deal. Because that's outraging us across this culture with anybody in power who would ignore it and not do anything about it. Listen, we can't have a God that's worthy of worship, that's worthy of admiration, that's worthy of us giving our lives and investments to, if he's not a God who will deal with the painful, awful injustice things in this world. And so some ways, these verses, while they are in a sense unnerving, they are actually very comforting. Because it means the worst things that have ever happened to you, if you've ever had real injustice that you've never been able to speak up about, listen, there there really is a God who cares about that more than you. 
And he will do something with that. And he will come to collect accounts on the unjust, painful things in this world. But here's what's so unnerving about this text. Here's the thing that's worthy of casting out. It's not just the obvious things that we see in culture. But the attributes of this man are not ones of irreligion, but but one of religion. Because who Jesus is talking to and who he is giving this parable to are the Pharisees, which are people who were very religious, who knew their Old Testament Bible, who went to all sorts of ceremonial things, who checked the I'm a Christian box, who told people in social settings that they were a follower of the Lord. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, you are going to be cast out. You are not going to be in the kingdom. You are going to be in the other place. But like that man, you don't know where you are. And what makes you so blind to it and what makes you so immune to that spiritual diagnosis is your own religious devotion. See, the easiest thing that you can do to be spiritually blind is to live in religious pride. Now, what do I mean by religious pride? Well, I was talking with a man a couple weeks ago. He knew I was a pastor. We were outside of our, our kids' football practice. And he said, yeah, well, you know, I consider myself spiritual, but I don't consider myself very religious. And what he meant, I think, in that conversation was that I don't go to any sort of institutional church. And so people typically in our community think uh, those who go to church uh, are involved in a church, they're religious, but those of us who don't, those are, we're not religious. That's not the context, though, in which the Bible understands and what Jesus is talking about. Because what it means to be religious here is to live under this paradigm that if I obey, if I'm a very good person, if I keep all the laws, God will then love me. God will then reward me. And it is that paradigm that stands, listen, not on the inside of the kingdom, but on the outside of the kingdom. Because if our mentality is that we obey in order to get God's love, in order to get his affection, then everything we do is God is on the dock and God is on trial. Look at the attributes of this man. Here's the marks of religious pride. It says this, For I knew you to be a hard man, and so I was afraid. That the mark of a religious heart, that if you think that you have to obey in order to get God's love, is that you're always afraid to fail Him. You're always afraid that this is a, like a judge, like a teacher, like a principal who's walking around looking at your mistakes and saying, Aha! I knew you would have a mistake there. I knew you'd be broken there. Don't do it again. And any of us who have been under any kind of authority where that exists, we're always, always living in fear. Look what the man says. He says, I considered you to be harsh. Do you think God is a slave driver? Because if you think that he's a God who sits out there and holds the rules over you as something to live up to, that means by definition you have to trust your own ability, your own importance, your own faithfulness. And when you trust your own faithfulness, you're by definition a fearful person because we are so fragile. 
And we are so fickle. And we are so prone to wonder and prone to turn inward that if our, our, if our salvation, if our belonging in the kingdom depended on our faithfulness, life will always be like this. It will always be up and down. But he's also full of pride. Believing God to be stingy. See, what religion tells you is that if you have been good, you deserve a better life. And God owes you that life. And others owe me this admiration. How is your heart this morning? Are you full of fear? Worried to be who you really are in front of other people? Are you constantly angry? Constantly thinking people owe you more. The world owes you more. Things are worthy more of you. See, those are the attributes of a heart that believes, God, if I keep obeying, you will love me. And then you will owe me. And there's a warning and a reality here. And the, re- the warning is that this mentality is more and more blinded sometimes by the more immersed in something like this that you get. See, if your assurance of this faith rests on your attendance, on your involvement, on your giving, that won't free your heart. That will bind it more into this idea that God owes you. And the reality is, what he's telling us in this parable, is that it's not just defecting your heart. That's going to lead you outside the kingdom. Because the, the, what the gospel is always trying to do is say, it's not the bad people are out and the good people are in. It's the proud are out and the humble are in. So what can we do about this? See, here's what this man fails to see. He fails to see how gracious in loving and giving the master really is. When he gives these talents, a talent was a, a, a year's salary. So the man who gets 10 talents or one talent, it might have been more money than he would have ever made in his whole life. And the parable illustrates that this man in no way understood how gracious in giving the master was. The most effective thing that you can do this week is to focus way more on your faults, on your shortcomings, on your mistakes, than on the extravagant, loving grace of God. See, here's the story that will always bring you into the kingdom. How is he this gracious? How does he keep doing this for me? And what will always leave you on the outside looking in is it's not your mistakes. It's not your shortcomings. It's not your faults. It's the religious pride on us that thinks, I have done enough. Why is he so stingy to me? The most beautiful line in this is when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. To these people who just went out with what he gave them, and lived in light of it. They didn't do anything. You see, but there was someone who did something. There was an ultimate servant who lived the most faithful life. And he wasn't just faithful, he was fruitful. But he wasn't cast in. Jesus was cast out on the cross so that you would never have to become in through your fruitfulness, but only through resting in faith in him. And he looks at you 
Listen, whether, whether you get this or not, whether grace feels something that you're still not sure that you can live in light of, or it's something that's really rich to you, he, do you understand the living God will look at you? Not in light of how faithful you've ever been, but if, if you're in Christ and look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. There was a man um, named David Ireland who contracted Lou Gehrig's disease while his wife was pregnant. And thinking that he was not going to live to see his child born, he decided to write a book because uh, he wanted his child to know him. So the book is called Letters to an Unborn Child. And the best chapter in that book is the one where he says, I want to introduce you to your mother. He says, this is son is what it's like when we go out on a date. When we went on a date, she has to shower me, empty my fecal matter bags, brush my teeth, get me dressed, put me in a wheelchair. Then she goes and gets herself ready, takes me downstairs, puts me in the car, drives us to the restaurant, gets me out of the car, puts me in the wheelchair, takes me in the restaurant, gets us seated. She orders us food. She feeds me while I'm drooling down my mouth, feeds herself. She pays the bill reverses the whole thing, takes me, puts me in the car, drives us home. We get home. She takes me back in, empties my fecal matter bags, brushes my teeth, washes me off, puts me in my pajamas. And he said, this is the last line that she says to me before we go to bed. She kisses me and says, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner tonight. It's a joy to be your spouse. And he said, son, that's what kind of mother you have. Do you understand? The living God will look at you one day. Whether you have been the most faithful person ever or someone who barely understood grace and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And in that moment, I promise you, you will not go, cool. You will go, Really? And you will take any crown, any reward, anything you've ever been given and fling it across the crystal sea and say, that story forever in my life. Listen, you, you want to know what will make you thankful? Quit thinking about your faults and go live in light of his love. It's an investment in your soul. Take it from Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, that we would know not, uh, not ourselves, but you and your love and your grace to us. May it be not just a song we sing, but our story going forward. May it shape, Lord, today, this week, our families to come. In Jesus' name, amen.